0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: If you
2: went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then
1: that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Yeah, you know, the west world is struggling at the moment. The kind of institutions and ideals which have really helped to create a largely peaceful and democratic world are under threat. And I think there's an argument that we can't just rely on the old resources and that maybe some of the resources we need could come from elsewhere. So that might sound a bit like, you know, colonialism. Alone. Again, we're going to raid them for their resources, but it, it's, not, it's not a raid. It should be, it's a two-way kind of trade,
3: for mm-hmm. sure. That was Julian Bugini talking about how studying the history of global philosophy might help us in today's world.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the philosopher Julian Bugini, whose latest book, How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy, explores the way people have thought from ancient times to the present. Putting the questions to him was Justin Champion, Emeritus Professor in History at Royal Holloway, University of London. Here's how their conversation went.
1: Well, I'm Julian Buggini and I'm a writer and philosopher, and my new book is called How the World Thinks. Hello, I'm Justin Champion. I'm
2: fortunately retired, but I was a history uh, professor of history of ideas at Royal Holloway, and I continue to be very interested in the history of history of ideas. One of the first questions that sprung to my mind, and this is before
1: we get into the sort of conceptual detail, is who is this book for? We have this idea that this, this so-called mythical, intelligent general reader out there, someone who's just curious about the world and ideas, philosophy, yeah, history. obviously the same with history. And actually, I think, you yeah, know, they're, they're basically it. I mean, there are people like that out there. So, it, it, you know, I do see it as being for anyone who's got that sort of curiosity about, about the world and, and, and the way it thinks. But actually, in a strange way, I think it's probably more for academics and other books I've written. Not because it's an academic book, but precisely because it's not an academic book. Because academia, for various reasons, some good, some bad rewards narrow specialism. And as a result, you know, you often don't even know people outside your own period, let alone your your culture. So actually, I think there's an increasing kind of embarrassment within academic philosophy in the English-speaking world. They don't know as much about things outside of their tradition. And I suspect some of them, perhaps guiltily, with a different dust jacket on, <laughs> might have a look through this. And, and really just give them starters, because this really is just about starters. I mean, in no way is it Am I pretending to be comprehensive or exhaustive? In the introduction, I say something like, it's about what you need to understand to begin to understand. It's that kind of entry point into these hugely rich and diverse traditions.
2: I, that's one of the things I found most compelling about the book, that a little bit like Melvin Bragg's In Our Time, that these are beautifully crafted essays that give you an in-in into the history of um, Chinese philosophy or the history of uh, Indian philosophy. And it made me think, a little bit like in my own discipline, straightforward history, there's a movement to do something called public history. And I wondered whether this is one of the first
1: serious attempts to do the public history of philosophy. Um, I think that's true. I mean, to say it's the first is always a dangerous thing to say. Um, There's a hugely ambitious project being done by... Peter Adamson, who's doing this massive podcast series. It seems like the 370th episode or something Mm -hmm. mad, which is like history of philosophy without any gaps, it's called, and it covers the whole world. I mean, that is compendious and and that's very good, but then very few people have the stamina to sort of go through it all. Um, But you're right, there isn't much. And also in the English speaking world, actually there hasn't been that much interest in history of philosophy we've tended to study philosophy very ahistorically which I think has been a great mistake so you know the, the cliche about this which is partly true is that people read Plato as though he had written a paper for the journal Mind the only contemporary thing and people don't think they even have to understand anything about the Athens of the time or how it was different. And when he starts talking about, you know, demons and gods, people just say, well, we'll just put that to one side. That's just him being poetic. So one of the reasons why there hasn't been a lot of it is that philosophers themselves have not been sufficiently interested in the historical dimension of their subject. I think the reasons why philosophy are not studied in schools in Britain or America are quite complicated. And partly it's because philosophy itself has become defined in a very narrow w- way. So on the continent, you know, philosophy is part of political and social thought. And so people in British universities are put in sociology departments. In their European countries, they'd be in philosophy departments. So we, we've almost like deliberately narrowed the scope of philosophy. And this is quite contemporary it's very recent I've been recently doing a lot of work on Hume and David Hume 18th century Scottish Enlightenment philosopher he wrote his philosophical works which we study now he also wrote essays and he also wrote history and these essays and histories are generally ignored and they're seen by a lot of people as like him losing his focus on his philosophical work but at the time he was a a man of letters as they called it a man of letters It, it wasn't narrow philosophy it was philosophy, politics, history. And he saw history as as part of his philosophical project because he was trying to understand human nature in a more empirical experimental way. And for him, history is, is like a series of experiments, if you like, in how humans behave in different situations. All that's kind of got lost, as I think for institutional and historic reasons, philosophy has been narrowed down to this very tight discipline. So I think in order for philosophy to be something that we could usefully teach at school, it's got to be a bit more of an expansive notion of philosophy than the one that's generally um, promoted at universities. No, I think that's exactly right. And
2: I know from my own personal bitter experience, when having been categorised as a historian of ideas you didn't fit into history departments who thought it was all too conceptual, nor philosophy departments because it was all a bit waffly and historical. And, you know, I I took great joy in reading this book because to my early modern mind, it's very much an early modern project. And, you know, post-Renaissance there is a very thriving history of the history of philosophy. So people like um, Thomas Stanley are doing these epic histories of philosophy that go back to, I mean, they know very little about China and India, but they have a little glimpse. And they certainly know about the Chaldeans and the Egyptians. I mean, most of it is made up. But they, they see that there is, around the globe, a set of issues that, in order to understand contemporary philosophy properly, you need to understand in the past. Now, of course, their books are folio, you know, epic, nine hundred pages that only about eight people have ever bothered reading. Yeah. Whereas this is is it's an open book. You know, one one can encounter it and explore, and it has useful footnotes and further reading. So,
1: if somebody wanted to get into the detail, it's there. Mm. Well. Um Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, there might be something to follow up on that. I mean, it interests me what you say about as a historian of ideas not really fitting into to either category. Um, I mean, these things have... You know, that kind of failure to fit a category has lots of repercussions. So, for example, in the book, I only say a little bit about Russian philosophy right at the end. And I feel that in some sense that's a shame, but really I... I wasn't helped with that. I mean, because they have this idea of Russian thought, for some strange reason, is generally considered to be not really philosophy, you know? It's something else. They're these Russian thinkers, but they're not really philosophers. What is it? It's kind of a bit of folk mythology, a bit of kind of religion. I don't know what it is. And there is so little that has actually been written in the English language on Russian philosophy. But it seems to me really important. The little bit I did glean... um, largely thanks to the work of Leslie Chamberlain, who wrote a wonderful book called Motherland on, on Russian philosophy. that actually, again, understanding this Russian philosophy tells you quite a lot about the Russia of today. This idea, the image it has of itself as something which is not of the West, but neither not of the East either, and having this privileged place. The way in which it kind of very self-consciously turns against the kind of hyper-rationalism of the Enlightenment and embraces a kind of romantic attachment to land, to the to the, to the peasantry, and certainly to religion, and that it sees itself as having like a special place in the world, really, to uphold these ideals against the onslaught from the West and against the East. I mean. Actually, you know, once you start doing that, it does sound like you're describing uh, the regime of today in a way. And I think there's so there's that's an opportunity where I think someone who is a specialist on that could really do good work and help us all by writing more about that. I I think that's very perceptive. And I know from
2: my own work, trying to understand how um, Russian universities appreciated the sort of radical Enlightenment, the Hobbes and the the later sort of thinkers, is very difficult. There are people working on it. They had entire academies on the scientific study of religion and atheism. But it's all in Russian. This is not very helpful to most of us. Um, Can I ask you a more sort of focused question? And you mentioned it in in your comment just then. Throughout the book, the Enlightenment gets a a bit of a bad um, sort of reputation. And I, I wondered, you know, the, the notion that the Enlightenment project is all about the elevation of human reason and the the, the sort of way the Enlightenment's being received as the defeat of religion and superstition. Do, do you think there are any possibilities for using the Enlightenment? And I'm thinking of the Todorov type, you know, why the Enlightenment still matters. Um, do, do you think there's any any sort of
1: saving grace to the Enlightenment project? Well, it's it's interesting, actually, that you you saw it as negatively as that. I think partly, you know, what I'm doing in challenging the Enlightenment is that I think, you know, you have to kind of challenge toughest. You You have to challenge hardest those things which people are most attached to, right? And so, in a sense, you might say a little bit of overcompensation there. But actually, what I'm most critical of is ways in which certain Enlightenment ideas have been taken up by the broader culture in, I think, a crude way. I think the original Enlightenment thinkers were often spot on, and they completely failed to conform to the stereotype of those who would diss it. So, for example, you know, John Gray is one of these sort of very vocal critics of the Enlightenment, and he talks about this naive idea in human progress and so forth. But, you know, as Jonathan Israel, who you mentioned, points out, that's actually not the case at all. They were very aware of the fact that progress was fragile, it could be reversed. They were generally not utopian. You can point to a few who were, but generally they're very realistic. And Hume, you know, for me, Hume is the one of the greatest philosophers in history, along with Aristotle, and he obviously didn't have this hyper, um, this ridiculous faith in the omnipotent power of reason. He was as sceptical about reason as you could be, but still wanted to push it. So for me, I think that you know, in order to recover the Enlightenment, as it were, we have to be very harsh at the ways in which the more simplistic interpretation of the Enlightenment has led us down blind alleys and led us astray. But we ought to have a look at what these Enlightenment thinkers actually said and, and appreciate the fact that, yes, we do need to use our, our reason as best we can. And the reason that's such hard work and the reason why it's so important is because there are a lot of things in human nature and human society that are going to work against it.
2: No, I, I, I think that's a very fair defence of what you've said. And I, I think some of the sort of meta-narratives around enlightenment, progress, rationality have done the enlightenment a massive disservice. I completely agree. And... and You know, I would include, in fact, Jonathan Israel's accounts uh, uh, as sort of over-egging the argument, because as soon as one starts looking at some of the more minor, non-canonical texts, Bernard Picard's, um, you know, the book that changed the world, according to Margaret Jacob, uh, account of the religion and customs of the world, is, is spectacular. It would fit in. It would, you know, provide beautiful illustrations for your book because it it encounters all of those other cultures, the Chinese, the Indian, the Brahmin, the Japanese, the Mexicans. And there's a beautiful frontispiece that represents every single religion that these people have encountered through their sort of historical study on one page. And of course, if you show this to contemporaries, they get very, very upset, because it shows the cultural relativism But it embraces it and says, you know, the world is made of the other, so we should celebrate it. And, I, you know, I can see that the sort of project you've captured feeds into that enlightenment interest in the other
1: and gives flesh to it. Well, it's interesting, but you use the phrase cultural relativism. Mm. And and I suppose I I do want to draw back from absolute relativism. I would rather defend what Isaiah Berlin called pluralism. And there is an important distinction there because if you're a complete relativist, what you're really saying is that nothing's better than anything else. There's no right or wrong at all. And I think that can't be right. I mean, you know, we've abolished slavery. Well, we've abolished certain forms of slavery (laughs) and we're still worried about the forms of slavery that still exist. And that's because there is no uh, possible world in which slavery is morally acceptable. But although there are certain things which are wrong, the list of ways of living which are perfectly acceptable and allow human flourishing, it's more than one, right? And I think that's an important aspect. So one value, I think, of examining these different philosophical traditions, particularly their moral and ethical and political principles, is to understand that, to understand that, you know, there isn't just one model for how human beings can can flourish. And also, though, to use these things as kind of mirrors back onto ourselves because actually, you know, sometimes you have to make choices. You know, if you have a society which sort of puts at its heart communitarian principles and likes to, you know, makes its priority, that kind of social harmony, it is going to lead to a trade-off in terms of individual freedom. So you can't have everything, that's what pluralism entails. The tragedy of pluralism is there's more than one good way to live, but you can't live all of them at the same time. The same, But at the same time as that, it's also true that you can use your awareness of what's good in other traditions to perhaps sort of mitigate some of the excesses of your own. And I see that as with individualism. I don't think the, the West should give up on the idea of individualism. I think it's been extremely helpful. It's been very liberating. But a lot of people would say there are excesses of individualism and a lot of people are worried about them. And I think, you know, seeing alternative values such as the... Confucian idea of harmony, gives us a resource to try and correct those excesses.
2: No, I I think that's very perceptive. And and one of the issues, you know, the language of scepticism and relativism comes with a huge baggage. But in the early modern period, for example, there are figures like Herbert of Sherbury, almost banned from any sort of curricula because he's odd. But his view was, let's look at the whole world and see how they represent God or virtue or morality, and learn from them. So he produces, again, very tedious books, The Religion of the Ancient Gentiles. But his principle was, these are all people doing the same thing in different ways, and we can learn from them. Um, he had slightly bonkers um, view that all religions were fundamentally right, and they're all the same, we're all worshipping God or the sun or whatever. And he had a very elaborate sort of philosophical underpinning for that. But into the 18th century, of course, the Enlightenment picked up on this and said, look, look, there's loads of old rubbish everywhere. It's all rubbish. Get rid of it. (laughs) So it's, and that's what I find so fascinating about your book. It's about reception as much as anything. We need to learn, which means we need to take seriously these other sort of human conventional
1: accounts, and that's all we have. Yeah, I, th- I hope that's um, true. I mean, in terms of the Anglophone world's disinterest in other philosophical traditions, it's been rooted in a perception that, although lots of things go under the name of philosophy in other parts of the world, it's just something else. You know, it may have its value, but whatever it is, it's not really philosophy. It's a kind of, I don't know, a kind of theology or a kind of, I don't know, folk wisdom, whatever it might be. But I think that's terribly, uh, what can I say? The problem with that is that, you know, if you're genuinely philosophical, then I think there are certain things that are of interest to you, namely, what can we know? How can we live? What sort of beings are we? And if you're being philosophical, you should be questioning all your assumptions about that, how you think about it, what you take to be, you know your your axioms. So when you see other traditions approaching those same questions in very different ways, rather than saying, well, that's just therefore not philosophy, you should be thinking, well, you know, maybe the way we conceive of philosophy might be a bit narrow. Maybe it can be expanded. Maybe we should look further. So that kind of curiosity is, is very sad that it's been lacking. And I'm a bit embarrassed in a way to admit this, because, you know, I'm 50 now, and it's taken me a long time to get round to this. So for the for the majority of my life uh, doing philosophy, I too kind of had that sort of feeling. But one of the bits I really
2: enjoyed were the little illustrations you have about um, the project of philosophy being reconciling integrity and autonomy. Um, have I got that right? The, the uh, Intimacy and integrity. Intimacy, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with, which I think... You know, in one sense, is the big philosophical
1: problem that we all confront yeah. today. Well, you know, this is one of those books where I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, standing on the shoulders of other giants, mm. and, you know, it's not um, about my own original interpretations. Um, I'm trying to join the dots, and what you've just referred to, I, I say in the book, I acknowledge it very clearly, is something from Tom Kasoulis. Tom mm. Kasoulis is a, a wonderful comparative philosopher who works on Japanese thought mainly. And he just has this knack time and again. I mean, I worry I was over quoting him because so often he puts things so beautifully and clearly and he really gets it. So for example, one thing, yeah, I'm talking about the book quite a lot, book festivals and things, and I end up always quoting his line that what you've got to remember is that it's not that these traditions are all completely other and they completely alien. It's rather what's foreground in one culture is background in another and vice versa. So, you know, when you see something in other tradition, what you're often seeing is something that's kind of there in the shadows, in the background in your own, but is is not sufficiently analysed or not put in the foreground. The distinction between intimacy and integrity is his. Now, although it's beautiful, I think the, the language perhaps is a little bit hard for people to, to, to get around. But he's basically saying this. There are two sort of different orientations for the way you think about the world and approach it. One is that way of looking where things are kind of broken up into their constituent parts. So that's the way of thinking in uh, science, contemporary science, the atomistic view, reductionist view, break things down. And it's kind of the way we nowadays tend to think about individuals you know so margaret thatcher famously said there's no such thing as society only individuals and of course you know people defend her by saying that she wasn't really saying there's no such thing as society she was simply saying society is what you have when you put a load of individuals together that's kind of fits our sort of paradigm but there's another way of looking at things in which actually we know that everything is related and it puts those relations in the foreground rather than the background. So it's not that you start with little individual items and then they're related. Rather, everything exists only to the extent that it's related. And indiv- human beings are like that. And again, it doesn't take much thought to realise there's obviously something very importantly true about that. I mean, if I think about who I am, you think about who you are, you can't even begin to make sense of that without understanding family, parents, society, people you grow up in. You know, it's it's built into who you are and actually the scientific worldview as well it's very interesting to me that science in recent decades has been making a lot of progress where it's moved a little bit away from the reductionist paradigm so systems biology for example is a hot research area because people are realizing you can only go so far when you analyze things in terms of their discrete Elements and actually, when you look at how they behave as systems, you get a different understanding. So, yeah, it's a wonderfully clear and lucid way of looking at things. And the other beauty of it is, is this is a, you can't say one's better than the other. That's the point. You somehow need to be able to look at the world in both ways, and sometimes one way is more appropriate than the other. But the best is where you kind of shift between the two. I think. So, I'm, I'm hugely indebted to Tom Casoulis for that and many other things.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the things that didn't bother me, but I was worried on your behalf <laughs> throughout, this must have been a really quite difficult book to write, just as you've said already, because of its capacious ambitions. But I wondered about the, the sort of, philosophical issue that in order to understand Japanese philosophy or Chinese philosophy, we have to translate it into essentially
1: Eurocentric um,
2: philosophical tradition.
1: Oh, I mean, the number of pitfalls that this project could fall into were endless. And in in the first draft, my introduction was like, you know, about 50 pages of trying to anticipate those and sort of reassure people I hadn't fallen into them. Um and, and and there are there are many. Um, where 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 do we begin? I mean, you you can't you have to look, you can't help but look at these things th- from where you come from. You know, there is own there is no view from nowhere. There's only a view from somewhere. So inevitably, this is a Westerner's look at it. But at the same time, you know, obviously, I don't want to distort it. Being true to it is very difficult. One reason it's difficult is that in any tradition, there are people who take different views. Um, if you were to ask sort of 10 Western philosophers about Descartes, you would get different answers. So, you know, I know that some people are going to stand up and say, that's not right, but I'm I'm comfortable that in hopefully in every single case, people who say it's not right will be expressing a view which is a legitimate view but wouldn't be the dominant one. All I could do was work with the people who knew, you know. I interviewed a lot of people for the book and they were experts in the field, often people who lived and worked in the countries I went to. I kind of allowed them to speak and a lot of what I say in the book is actually directly quoting them. And as far as possible, I also, you know, ran the drafts by people to check I'd, I'd got it right. Um, I can't do any more than that. Um, I think that one, as a reader and a writer, has to have a certain humility about this, which I tried to get over in, I think, early on. You know, Let's not kid ourselves that you can read this book and become an expert. Let's Don't pretend you can understand Chinese and Japanese culture just because you've read that. Going back to what I said before, it's what you need to understand to begin to understand. And I think as long as you have that... In a strange way, you see, the book is both hugely ambitious and extremely modest. It's um, it's obviously ambitious in the scope, and trying to cover this huge range might seem hubristic, but also it's extremely modest for that reason, because it's about telling us that be aware of what we don't know, be aware of how little we can know, and just use this as a way in. Mm. I do, in various parts of the book, try and sort of make it clear where there are bones of contention within the traditions in particular i think um, i had to be very careful in two areas in particular so the philosophy of the islamic world do we even call it islamic philosophy mm-hmm. you know there is this kind of debate about whether or not after this so-called golden age in the middle middle ages uh, where of avicenna and Averroes, basically islamic philosophy lost its way and became just theology and the philosophy got lost or whether that is a, a kind of a Western distorted way of looking at it which is just a response to our kind of intolerance for a religious dimension. There's a dispute there and I try and show both sides. Similarly in Indian philosophy actually, I mean in Indian philosophy there are people who take um, great pride in the fact that it doesn't distinguish itself from religion. That, it, you know, religion and a philosophy are kind of one and that's its great joy. There are others who think that that's a kind of caricature and that saying that Indian philosophy is infused with religion is a way of dismissing it and of not doing justice to its its rich tradition of thought. And again, that's a a dispute I try and explain a bit in the book so that people can understand there are different views there. Now, one thing that becomes very evident if you look at, even superficially, the history of Islamic thought um, is that, first of all, there's great diversity and richness there. No matter what you may say about it, you know, they're not all of one voice. And yeah, there's very complex, rich, original thought going on. It's not a monolithic uh, culture at all. And, you know, various periods in different places in the Islamic world, you have seen more open and more closed societies, just as we have had in Christendom. And I think that one of the most important things is to, is to recognise two things which might seem to be slightly in contradiction. It's that... We don't have to imagine that what Islam has to do, or the Islamic world has to do, is what the Christian world did in the Enlightenment exactly, you know? A lot of people say there should be this Islamic Enlightenment. Well, to a certain extent, there may be some truth in that, but the idea that's going to be a mirror image of the Western Enlightenment seems to me false. I think we have a much more optimistic, much more realistic sort of view, perhaps, of uh, how the West's and the Islamic world cannot have this clash of civilizations by looking at how within Islam itself, there are lots of ways of thinking which are extremely tolerant and open and we can coexist with. So, you know, it's both. I think there's this balance, which I'm trying to advocate all through the book, which is between both fully acknowledging where there is difference, but not making so much of that difference as to shut down the possibility of mutual understanding and and coexistence you know can't just pretend everyone's the same but nor can we sort of like make out everyone's so different we're heading for the rocks you know do you see your project as having any political edge well that's an interesting question isn't it because you know um, I hate to sound like a philosopher but there are many different <laughs> sort of, uh, meanings of the word political mm. aren't there I guess if we're being honest, I guess it I guess it does. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting about whether the book is is timely. Um because I wasn't thinking this the world needs this book right now because it's a time in which it seems nationalism is on the rise, national borders are being closed. There's this kind of nativist surge in many different parts of the world. And therefore what we need is more sympathetic understanding of other cultures but actually that is probably kind of right you know i do i do think we need to at this time resist that's the political element resist this move towards insularity nativism and and nationalism and so from that point of view it does have a a political dimension i think that you know philosophy is only one aspect of that you can achieve similar things through music and art but you know whenever anyone has a sympathetic and positive encounter with another culture it chips away at those kind of forces of nativism and nationalism and you know philosophy is something where we haven't had a lot of it you know we are used to kind of celebrating the art and, and that kind of the artistic culture of other countries um, their cuisines <laughs> uh, their architecture their literature, but but not their ideas. And I also think it's very important because, you know, actually, you know, for our own sake as well, you know, the West world is struggling at the moment. Um, the kind of institutions and ideals which have really helped to create a largely peaceful and democratic world are under threat. And I think there's an argument that we can't just rely on the old resources and that maybe some of the resources we need could come from elsewhere so that might sound a bit like you know colonialism over again we're going to raid them for their resources but it, it's not it's not a raid it should be it's a two-way kind of trade for mm. sure And you
2: just made me think as you were speaking that you know to steal and invert Marx's favorite statement about philosophy um, what, what your argument seems to me to be that in order to change the world, we need to understand it first, and that's not just the European world, the world. And here we've got the first steps in exploring that global, cosmopolitan understanding.
1: Yeah, I think, yes, in order to change the world, we do have to understand it. In order to change our thinking, we have to know what borders to where we are and, and what are the possible alternatives for how we might go in the future. I mean, I think actually the interesting aspect of it, one question mark over the book is, you know, a key thesis is that philosophy reflects culture and is illuminates mm-hmm. culture in various ways. And there's a question of, well, that may have been true up until the past. Is that now changing in a highly globalised world? And I think... I, I, I'm not certain about that. I, my, my, my sense is that cultures are more resilient than we think, and it takes a lot more time. You know, just importing jeans and Coca-Cola and sort of MTV doesn't change a culture fundamentally overnight. But, you know, if it does change, then even more important it is then to try and retain some of these ideas. A bit like, you know, people are trying to keep hold of endangered species and endangered languages If these ways of thinking of themselves endangered because we're creating this homogeneous sort of world, then we need to start collecting those ideas before they get forgotten.
3: That was Julian Borgini in conversation with Justin Champion. How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy is out now, published by Granter. And you can read a written version of this interview in the latest edition of BBC World Histories magazine. Look out for it in all good retailers or find out more on historyextra.com. And that is about all for today, but we will be back on Thursday when Catherine Hanley will be talking about Empress Matilda.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.